When you create a space and a safe space and you allow yourself to just be you unashamedly, without fear, without fear of judgment or consequence or shame, you can just open yourself up to the most amazing experiences. That's Charlotte Ray, home cook and author of her new memoir and cookbook, Heartbake. Look, guys, I don't actually know how to explain this properly. I've written this intro four times. I can't find the words to do Charlotte Ray justice. She is a hopeless romantic and just loves love. She has been through the ringer in recent years, and now by telling her story, she's bringing women together and creating a space for friendship, healing, and reflection to be formed. Her voice is super soothing, which you're about to hear, and she is literal sunshine. I met her for the first time for this recording and I absolutely adore her. I'm smiling from ear to ear as I record this intro because she really just is a ray of sunshine and I adored her and I just hope that you do too. Before we dive in, I want to pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land which we recorded on, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to Process the Podcast. I'm your host, Ariel Thomas, motion director, social strategist, and founder of production company Cinema Tom. I can't wait to bring you into the world of my guests, the creme de la creme of the Australian and international creative landscapes. In fashion, media, and design, as well as across many, many more, we unpack their unique creative process. Let's dive in. I'm also quite unwell at the moment. I'm sinusy, so I'm just, I'm batching podcasts this week. I love it. But I've shot myself in the foot because it's going to sound like I'm <laughs> sick for months on end. I but love anyway. That. So, firstly, let's introduce you because yeah. I know who you are, but listeners may not know who you are. Yes. Oh, as in I introduced yeah. myself? Well, yeah. Okay. Because you just um, did the elevator pitch with Good Foods. So I, I want to hear, hear what you say. I did. Okay. Um, hi. My name is <laughs> <laughs> Charlotte Ray. I am a home cook. What? So, what is a home cook? I mean, totally unqualified and okay. <laughs> and unhinged and definitely not health and safety in advised. No, I, um, I'm self-taught. I'm, you know, I've done no training whatsoever. And I would say um, I say home cook instead of chef because I cook. I, yeah, I have no ambition to own a restaurant. I have no ambition right. to do anything of that vein, you know, okay. formally or professionally. I just want to share really simple, easy, beautiful recipes with people and it's comfort food and it's the kind of food that people want to cook. I love that. Mm. So you've just been in, you're in Melbourne now for the Good Food Festival. Yeah. What did you have to do this morning? So I'm doing a, a like a 30-minute cooking demo each day and I made my mum's spinach pie on stage, which I've made so many times before and could do with my eyes closed. Mm. Um, but it is, I'm doing lots of things lately that are pushing me out of my comfort zone and that's something that is such a gift actually mm. because I think um, it's weird. I, I haven't been nervous in any of the promotional stuff but I've definitely felt like, oh, wow, you're about to do something you've never done before. And that's so cool. That's exciting. It feels really like transformative in, in you know, a bizarre way, not to sound trite, but um, <laughs> just to push yourself out there and just do something I've never done before. Yeah. So you've got a – this is your second book. It's my second book, yeah. But being a home cook. How does one 
When you did your first book, for example, what mm. was your day job? Um, so I still have a day job. Okay, so what do you do? <laughs> I'm, I'm head of marketing for a book publisher. Okay. And I've been there for 13 years in different roles. So when my first book came out, I was, I think, publicity manager right. at the time. So one of my questions, I guess, is how does one that just has a pretty intense passion for cooking go to a publisher and say, hey, I want to put a cookbook out? Yeah. Is that because you had the in with the publishing company? I th- I th- for definitely, I mean, the first one for sure, but also, you know, it doesn't, it's not, I'm not some Nepo baby. You know, I, had, <laughs> I had a following, I had um, done an ebook yeah. called Bakery and it sold incredibly well and so I was able to come to, and show kind of that there was an audience there and that there, you know, there I yes. had worked really hard for that. Um, and this next book was different because my first book was published as a company that I work for, but this time around I got an agent and I got an agent because uh, it was a, it's a very deeply personal story and I wanted to separate author Charlotte from yeah. work Charlotte and that meant industry Charlotte, you know, and yeah. she was taking out to people that weren't just my company and it had, you know, people I'd worked with for years since I was 19 and um, and it went to auction. And so that was an entirely different experience um, and, a, and a mind-blowing experience to have that to have that occur. I think you've also probably gone through a bit of a rebrand as well. Do you think yeah. that that's you rebranding because you're working with a new audience? Or, I mean, a new I mean, team? Or is that because you've if evolved? You, I have evolved so much. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at, and I keep joking about this, but I'm deadly serious. I keep waiting for um, the stock of my first book, Just Desserts, to become low enough that I can sort of get the rights back and then it's never published again. <laughs> but um, because it is, if you look at that, and you can see photos of me quite easily Googleable um, and go back far enough on my Instagram, you know, I was a pattern wearing, coloured wearing, mm. shift dress, fringe, bob, sometimes copper, bright orange hair, um, sometimes brown hair. I was definitely um, performing and hiding and I, and so much of that was that I didn't know who I was and what I wanted and what I liked and I had created this kind of um you know, veil over me, like I suppose. Kind of, yeah. yeah. And and that's not to say I was disingenuous or that I wasn't myself. I, I was a version of myself. But now, you know, I hardly wear makeup. I'm, I have not got the fringe anymore. I don't dye my hair anymore. Um, I just, when I went through um, significant changes in my life, which I'm sure we're going to talk about, yeah. capital D for divorce, um, I realised that the only way I wanted to be moving forward was vulnerable, raw and real. And so that meant paring myself back and peeling myself back like an onion and exposing all of those parts of myself, even the parts that I didn't quite like or understand, in the hope that I would A, understand myself, but B, understand the people around me more and with more, I guess, of a kindness and a compassion that I hadn't really allowed myself to have before. I've read the book and I've read and I've listened, sorry, to several podcasts that you've been on. And I also want to apologize to listeners that I am still sick and I've lost my voice, <laughs> but I'm hoping that everyone thinks it's sexy, sexy not yeah. like tonsillitis, it's hot. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, you could go that way or you could definitely go the other, like shut up, hurry up, go to bed. <laughs> so you have gone through this like through the ringer mm-hmm. of different relationships and in the book it's so it really maps out 
all the things. And especially in the Mamma Mia podcast, the no filter that you did, I feel like I don't want to necessarily rob them yeah. and, and create a duplicate episode, mm-hmm. but it is so important because we do not have the same listeners. Yeah. How can we dive in to kind of glaze over the A to Z of what you went through between divorce? Well, you first, you started with a breakup, maybe 20, like 15 or so, yeah, right? Yeah, And then you got back together and yes. then you proposed yes. and then... You ended up breaking up the day. It's like a quick fire. I love yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> and then all because I know the story. I know, yeah. But how can we kind of take people through that without taking up the whole hour yeah, of our sure. chat with that? Because I, mean, I want to get through much more of the self-discovery yeah. stuff. Yeah, okay, so top line. Um, <laughs> I met my ex-husband when I was 19. It's the same time that I started my career. And um, the best way to sort of um, – I guess, and it's still true to this day, to sort of describe myself is that I really invest in things. I become <laughs> very invested and um, and make those things my whole world. And so I made my relationship my whole world and I made my job my whole world. And, you know, when you get um, into a relationship at 19, you're with that person. We were together until I was 29. You either grow up or you grow apart and um, you grow up together, sorry, or you grow apart and and we grew apart. And fundamentally, we wanted different things. Fundamentally, we were entirely different people. And, um, you know, like every relationship, we had our ups and downs, but the the crux of it was that sexually we were incompatible, which, you know, for two um, 20-somethings is is absolutely fucking depressing. (laughs) Um, Sorry, I don't know if I can swear. You can absolutely swear. (laughs) And the other was that financially we just had different objectives and different motives and and he very much wanted to buy a house and I just very much wanted to live my life and travel Mm -hmm. and and I worked so hard that I just wanted to enjoy that. And so, you know, we did couple therapy for a year. We... um, actively and and aggressively tried to make it work and I and I think it definitely was my decision to leave and uh initially I wanted a separation but he said that um it wouldn't be a separation it would be a divorce if I left um and so I left I still went knowing that do you think he knew that did he think that you would I don't or do you think that was a threat I think to trying I think and 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 Threat's a strong word and I, I, I think it was a thinly veiled threat. I think it was a, um, a you know, when you're clutching and, and doing anything you can to make something work. Uh, and so as much as it was my decision to leave, I think we definitely both later agreed that it was both of us mm. um, that it was the best thing for both of us. And now we have a really healthy and really supportive relationship because we just can appreciate each other's differences and acknowledge that, you know, we just weren't meant to be that person for each other. You've said on the Mamma Mia podcast, you guys kind of unpacked financial abuse, if you will, with twisting how you would spend your own hard-earned money. Mm-hmm. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah. I um, When we got married, he was really wanting to join bank accounts and my mum was so adamant that I didn't do that. And I just didn't see any wrong with it I thought yeah 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 absolutely um and so I went in quite blindly and and also you know hopefully I suppose um but eventually eventually what sort of happened was that he um I got a $100 allowance each week from our joint money rent and petrol and bills and phone bills and electricity and internet Mm. was all paid so any of those sorts of 
joint things but anything outside of that like if I wanted to go have dinner with a girlfriend or if I wanted to have a cocktail or if it was late at night and I needed to get an uber home that all came from my $100 allowance and then if that was spent there wasn't any future money so like imagine you want to buy a dress and that dress is like $220 that had to be like two and a bit weeks that I would save for that money and the the big sort of um you know, Chernobyl effect maybe was that I needed new bras and I have, you know, big breasts on a tiny body and and bras aren't cheap. They're a hundred plus dollars and I didn't think that that should come from my allowance and we had a pretty horrific argument about it and that's the first time that I properly knew that something was not right and then the second time was when I realised that I wasn't getting what I needed out of couples counselling and I needed more support and so I needed to find my own psychologist and I did and psychology is expensive Mm. even with a mental health care plan. Um, My psych is $280 and I couldn't pay for that outside of my allowance again and we had quite a severe um, disagreement on that. Mm. And then I began to hide money. I began to siphon money. I began to... um, lie and I'm not proud of that and I, I really mean that but there was so much shame um, surrounding it and I suppose the reason why I'm so open and wanting to talk about it is because if someone else could kind of realise that just by talking about it they can actually help themselves yeah. it's really really important to me and um, you know I don't think I really thought about it as being financially abusive until after I'd left and I got sent a, a podcast about financial abuse. You never really know when you're in it. Yeah, for so know, many things. Yeah, for so many yeah. things. How have you now come to terms with the friendship of those? Because when you're in a relationship like that and you can step back and you are realising all the things mm. and I guess you realise what the impact that they had on you and the way that they were twisting and turning and making choices that then would impact you. When you can kind of say so bluntly, someone was financially abusive towards me how do you how have you then gone about mending that to be in a friendship now rather than just being like fuck you <laughs> <laughs> because he's not a bad guy yeah. and he was so he was so coming from a place of our best interests and I genuinely mean that like he is not manipulative, he is not malicious. Mm. He just really wanted to buy a house and that was his, the one way that he saw us doing that. Yeah. And so um, he's, a, he's a beautiful man, he really is. He's like a, um, he's brilliant and he's intelligent and he's kind and I would describe him like a puppy dog <laughs> and, um, a, you know, a really over-enthusiastic man but with boyish charm. Yeah. And he just was not the man for me. Mm. And I guess I reconcile that and desperately want a friendship with him because a third of my life was spent with him and it makes me feel terribly sad if I couldn't, you know, have him in my life in that way. And and the other day, you know, um, was my birthday a couple of months ago. The first person to text me after my mum at 7am in the morning was him. And you know, he and I absolutely had our differences and we have different feelings perhaps about what happened in the past. But we both can sit there and we had lunch recently and and we kind of talked about like why we would see each other or why we would, ha- we would have lunch. There is a mutual respect. There's a mutual um, care, duty of care mm. um, for that other person and that's 
sort of what is the driving force for me. And also that I don't think you need to go through divorce and for it to be um, completely toxic all of the time. Mm. That's not to say there are absolute instances where people for their own self-preservation and protection need to do what they need to do to put themselves first. But for me, I grew up in a family where my mum's dad and stepdad, who was now married to her mum, would all have Christmas together, Mm. where my mum would be, um, you know, openly talking to my dad and then my brother's dad. We had different dads. Like I came from such a blended family that it was inconceivable to me that you wouldn't just have that person in your life. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. When I was reading your book, I smiled so many times because there's a lot of similarities between our Mm. mums, even the way that your mum called unopened or unkind of experienced cookbooks virgins. <laughs> my mum, I will never forget, like she'd bring home magazines from the supermarket or the news agency, wherever she got them, she put them on the dining table. Anyone that dared peek at them, really? don't you dare crack that spine. Really? It's a virgin. <laughs> yes. And then the um, the birth song. I have a birth song too. Wow. And I was reading it and I was like, I was, ta- I was like taking notes mentally about how I was going to approach chatting to you but I was like what this is weird I was like looking in a mirror because I'd never heard of such similarities in women it was really nice so you then decided to leave Mm -hmm. and that was pre-COVID yeah so mid-Feb 2020 I made the decision to leave and we had you know a, a session in couples therapy and um and I We'd come home and it was quiet. It was not, we didn't yell, we didn't argue. I mean, we cried and, you know, we sat on on the couch and cried together Um, and we shared a bed together for quite some time after that, a few weeks, and then I found a a house to move into Mm -hmm. and um, it was ridiculous. It was a (laughs) three-storey terrace, um, but I fell in love with the kitchen. But, you know, it was $1,100 a week and it was completely on my own. I had no intention to have housemates. And I moved into that um, that home and a new suburb. It was quite not quite far, but it was you know fifteen minutes away from where I'd lived previously. I guess it's new. And mm. um, and then the next day, Sydney went into lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can <coughs> we can laugh about it. Now. <laughs> it's fine. It was so horrific. It's like yeah, 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 yeah. I can joke about it. Now. Oh my lord. Yeah, that would have been so lonely. Yeah. It was horrific. It was horrific. And it was so, um, yeah, I was so terrified. And I guess I was terrified because part of um, the anxiety that had developed through the financial control Mm. was that I became very indecisive and I became quite anxious around making decisions. And I don't mean big decisions like will I leave or stay in my marriage. It would be like what do I want to eat right now? Yeah. What am I going to wear today? Like it was the indecision was so consuming. Mm. It was um, crippling actually. And so to then have all of that happen, to not be entirely sure that I should have left, um, to consider if I could go back, you know, it was, Mm. it was very, it was a very dark time. Yeah, I can imagine incredibly, we were grieving yeah yeah and I guess for me it wasn't a grief of it was a grief of the relationship but I actually had more grief for myself I had more grief for the fact that I had no idea who I was and how desperately sad that was that at 29 I couldn't recognize myself 
And you mentioned before that you were, your style, like your personal style was surrounded with a fringe and different fabrics and shapes of dresses and all of that. And now obviously you're very stripped back Mm. in the most beautiful way. (laughs) How does one go into identity like that? Like in grief, I guess it's not, it's never linear. It's not a timeline, Mm. but how did you go in that? Because it's essentially in isolation. I mean, we have neighbours, but we can't necessarily spend time with them. Yeah, I mean, it was complete self-sabotage. I drank too much. I didn't eat. Right. Um, I didn't sleep. I uh, had the worst and most cruel internal dialogue you could possibly imagine. Mm. Um, And that was, it was all just this fight. I was at war with myself. I was at war um, with trying to reconcile what I had done in in leaving that marriage and breaking someone's heart. Um, I was trying to reconcile kind of getting to nearly 30 and, and having given so much of myself to so many other people for so long. Mm. How dare I think that I could love myself or that I was worthy of love? How dare I think I could nourish myself by cooking myself food so therefore I just deprived myself of food? How dare I think that anyone would um, want to see me, the real me, and then still want to know me? Where did that, like, intense self-loathing come from? I think it just came from just a lifetime of people-pleasing, a lifetime of of just wanting so desperately to be liked, I suppose, and feeling, I I guess, in leaving my marriage that I had done something really unlikable. Yeah, that's so sad. <laughs> yeah. And now you've channeled all of it yeah. into this so aesthetically pleasing, mm-hmm. so beautiful memoir slash cookbook. How can you recount getting from then to now? Yeah. The work I can't even imagine, the self-work, yeah. the therapy sessions. Yeah, I mean I things. have, I owe... Um, so much to my incredible therapist. I call her the Oracle. <laughs> um, and she, you know, she saved me in a lot of ways. And she, her response to that is, you saved yourself. But I guess it's through the very intense work with her mm. that I was able to to really grieve and to really grow. And I said this to someone the other day and um, it, it might sound terrible, but it, if my mum will say that she's proud of me, I'm like, yeah, like, thanks, thanks, mum. Or, yeah. you know, my ex-boyfriend will say, I'm, I'm so proud of you. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the oracle says she's proud of me. <laughs> it means everything. It, yeah, <laughs> it brings me to my knees because she has, there is nothing that is held from her. I am yeah. my most ugliest, most raw, most vulnerable um, and so the work I've done with her, I'd say, is is probably the most transformative. But on that, you know, I feel like um, Matilda, you know, when she would go to the library with her in the movie with the trolley and she'd fill it up. That's yeah. kind of how I feel with the Oracle is like I leave there and I feel really hungry and I really want to learn more and understand more. And I, I suppose through all of my experiences in life, I wouldn't change anything because it's made me understand myself on such a deeper level and it's made me want to understand people on a deeper level. I want to know why I am the way I am, why I'm reacting the way I am. I want to understand what makes me tick, what are the things that 
of leading to that reaction or that feeling or that insecurity and the same for people around me. So I will now skip the small talk and I will now dive right in and mm. I will now, you know, having just met you and, and you're opening up to me and I'm opening up to you, but that's the only way I can see myself mm. being in the future. And have I lost relationships as a result of it? Absolutely. But has it expanded my relationships and my interactions with people, you know, tenfold? It's, it's been a gift. When you think of your, the work mm. that we do as with therapy and when you're going through grieving and trauma and knowing oneself, where's the timeline that you felt like all of the work could be a memoir? Mm. I, and the big thing I want to say is like I will always be working. There will mm. never be a point Ever. I actually refuse where I sit and settle and go, oh, I'm good now. Yeah. <laughs> the <laughs> because, work is never done, is yeah, it? Yeah, no. <laughs> it's never done. I am, I'm continually learning about myself. Mm. Um, but I suppose the real turning point for me was that I, um, I come from a publicity background and mm -hmm. I had a, a girlfriend that worked at Vogue magazine, Hannah Rose Yee, and I had had a work meeting with her and then after the work meeting we were having a drink and I said, I want to I pitch an idea to you mm -hmm. and that is that I want to write a piece called Heartbake and I want to write it for the magazine and, and this is what it is. And so it was 2,000 words and it was essentially uh, like a divorce coming out story in some ways. Right. Um, it was talking about my people-pleasing tendencies, my um, dating, the way I had cooked for the first days, what I had done for other people and then ultimately realising that I needed to just look after myself and that mm -hmm. I deserved to look after myself. And um, it came out in September of 2021. Mm-hmm. And I would say it would be, it was a vulnerability test. It was a test for myself, but it was also a test to see if there was an audience potentially for a story that I felt I really wanted to tell. And the response was overwhelming um, from women, but also from men. And, and there were the men um, on the comments because it got shared on the Australian website as well and you know there was a man that said maybe if you just made a meat pie and some mushy peas you would have had a guy stick around for a bit longer and you didn't need to do these four course meals <laughs> Thanks, mate. but then there were just all of these women that just of all ages mm. that just said that they felt like they were seen and that they were heard and the driving force for me the guiding light for me, like the North Star, the purpose for me right now in everything that I do is that someone somewhere will feel seen, they yeah. will feel heard and they won't feel alone by me sharing my story. And my God, do I wish that I had had that person when I was going through what I went through. Yeah. So just one person, someone said to me like, what's your measure of success for the book? And it is right now the the incredible DMs I have been getting from women whose husbands moved out. A woman wrote to me yesterday that her husband had moved out the night before. She'd been living off air and, like, I think wafer biscuits. Oh. And she said that she'd read the book and she was making herself my eggplant pasta and it's the first time she'd eaten in a week. And that's mm. my why. Yeah. It's a pretty universal thing that humans do, try to – express ourselves in a way to not make people feel alone. Yeah. I went to acting school in the US and on my first day of auditions because we I went to audition for a bunch of schools, the that was the first thing that I got asked. And I had no idea what I was doing, but I said, 
because when I think when you go to a theatre, people go to the theatre on stage to watch a version of life so that they can connect with it and feel less alone. And I said that and I was like, I just want to make people feel less alone because I went through a pretty traumatic teen years and it was well beyond what I should have experienced yeah. um, in terms of trauma. And it was crazy to be 17 and being like, I've moved all the way across the world to not make people feel alone. And now in a filmmaking capacity, I'm doing it in a fashion sense, but I've just signed on to do a breast cancer documentary. And we had our first call with a patient last night and I was in tears and I was trying so hard to be like, I'm the director. I have to be your strength. (laughs) I am not. I'm trying really hard not to be emotional, but it's so strong. And as soon as you find that and you're, and that's your North star, God, we can move mountains with it. Yeah. It's so nice. So the contents of the book is in nine parts and they all start with F. Mm. When you went through from the actual article being a success, how do you then get to, obviously the recipes and stuff, we'll get to that later because it's at the back of the book. We can do this chronologically. The actual formation of how you would tell your story. Yes. And the Fs and the chapters. How did that come to be? So I first got an agent Uh and then I um, did a a proposal. I got a, a designer that I knew loved Evio and she helped me with I think it might have been like a 20 page document and it was um basically it was I sold an idea which is not something I ever want to do again because I I felt a lot of pressure you know I hadn't I you know I'd never written before yes I'd written a cookbook cookbooks are a piece of piss I had never written a book before in this way. And so And it's you in your entirety. Yeah. So it's also another level of vulnerability. And so the pitch, um, the, the proposal document sort of outlined who I was, it outlined what I wanted, and it had at the time seven chapters beginning with F and a little outline about what each of those chapters would be. Uh-huh. It included the Vogue article and it included some media that I'd done in the past. Mm-hmm. And that went out to widely to a bunch of publishers and there was enough interest that, um, you know, I'm so thankful that I had an auction, which is something I never thought I would ever have. Um, Can you talk us through what that is? Because not being from the book industry. Yeah, so basically uh, multiple publishers are vying for your the rights to publish your book mm-hmm. and so you're being wooed. It's like you have a dance card and, and my agent and I bunkered down in my favourite restaurant in Sydney, Bar Vincent, and we held meeting after meeting and, um, you know, uh, people that I had known for years were, were basically pitching to me as to why I should publish with them and, and choose yeah. them. And I ended up um, choosing Alan and Amman, um. and that is because the, the publisher, Kelly Fagan, shared my vision so wholeheartedly, had had heartbreak in her life, but more than that, she's someone who I've known since I was 19 and she used to be a publicist just like I used to be a publicist. Yeah. And she just got it. And um, apart from that, she also did a really clever thing in her um, offer that she added like $717.47 for me to go to my favourite restaurant to celebrate dinner, uh, to celebrate with dinner. I, I chose to publish with her. And I just loved that. I loved that she just knew me and knew how yeah, much I loved how? food so innately. So the Fs. I actually can't tell you where they came from. It just, it just always was. And this is where, you know, um, 
maybe part of it's like post-traumatic stress of having gone through the writing process. Mm-hmm. But but also I had such a clear vision and I am not a visual person in that mm-hmm. way. I sucked at visual art. I cannot draw. <laughs> yeah. I cannot do music. I've tried. Um, but for some reason this was so clear to me. I knew there was going to be an egg on the cover. I loved 17th century still life paintings. So I knew that's what I wanted the end papers to be. I knew that I'd wanted the dinkus, which is the little chapter divider Uh to be an egg, which I now have tattooed on my wrist. So even when I submitted my manuscript, I had this kind of drawing as that. And then they used that. I knew that I'd wanted them all to be Fs. Did those Fs change? Yes. So I think Mm -hmm. There was Fade, which is a chapter in the book which encompasses a friendship breakup, dating and part of the divorce, Um, like as in when the divorce got finalised, it was actually three chapters Mm -hmm. and they were Fawn, Fade and Freeze. Yeah. And then they became one uh, when I went through a, uh, blindsiding of a breakup just as the book was going to the printer, it meant that I, um, as an avid reader, could not in good faith let a reader get to the end of the book and think there was this Hollywood love story. Yeah. And I owed it to the reader, I felt, to be honest about exactly where I was at that point in time. And so I added an epilogue and that's where Freeze came back in. Right. So the Fs, they did kind of change and merge but they were always f's and i think there was all there was seven and now there's nine it from reading it it's like because i had a really beautiful copywriter on this podcast danny and she works in the comments here she was telling me when you when she writes copy for a certain brand and the word um like alliteration of things like she was doing sunday you know that whipped body cream brand Sunday and she was doing that she was explaining to me how like there's you how you craft sentences and instructions and stuff like that and she would write these short tiny little sentences but really inspire you to feel like you were if the flavor was coconut for example to feel tropical regardless of what that sentence was actually supposed to tell you it could have been how you're supposed to lather it or whatever but the outcome of that using word alliteration and stuff is that you innately feel like you're on a tropical island and I don't know how they did that. <laughs> did but, you feel like you were on a tropical island when you read my book? <laughs> no, but the, the way that you write about food, I was like, yeah. oh, God, this is so – I was wrapped up in the kitchen. Like mm. I felt like I was there in this like delicious, very – I don't know, just the way that it was written, it's so tactile and like sensorial and the way that the Fs are written, it feels really feminine. Mm. And I don't know how that was. I really wanted to ask like what the actual, where that even came from, but I love that it just happened because it makes such an impact. Yeah. And even when you're reading Heartbake and you've got a cracked egg on the cover, you feel like that's going to be a little bit chaotic. But when you open the book and you read on the the contents or the – what do you call it? When like it's the outline of the, the outline, yeah, and it all—it's also fucking formulated. You're like, I'm in safe hands right now. Yeah. Uh, this is not chaotic. This is a beautiful story of a journey. And this is where um, the food stylist is. Her name's Kirsten Jenkins. Yeah. she's the one person I wanted to work on the book, and um, and that I would have moved mountains just to have her yeah. on the book. She described the cover image um, as being really important to her that the egg was cracked, but that it was still whole. Mm. I just loved that so much yeah. because it just sums it up so perfectly. 
Well, I think when you've got a book called Heartbreak, it doesn't, unless you have the knowledge of the article, you don't know the context. But the cracked egg is, oh, it just got me. And holding it is such a triumph for you. Like holding that book the way that it makes a person feel with the oh, yellow, wow. it just speaks to your personality because you are literally a ray of sunshine. <laughs> you have these like big, beautiful eyes and you're so warm. Even when I greeted you downstairs, like we hugged. I never met you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it just has come together in this incredible way that I feel like it's you in this chapter of your life in a book form. Thank you. Which is so beautiful. And I think that's so apt to the chapter because I – you know, that went to the printers in mid-November. It's now mm-hmm. mid-May. And it's, I look at that and, and I struggle to read it. I've listened, this sounds so self-indulgent. I can listen <laughs> to the audiobook, yeah. but I can't read it. And I think that's because it's such a time capsule of everything I thought and felt at that time. But my goodness, like six, nearly seven months on, I have learned so much more Yeah, and can look at that and be like, oh, my darling, like, yeah, wow. you know, and I love that. I do love that, but it is it is a, a space in time and a place kind of exactly how I felt at thirty one years old in in November of twenty twenty two. Do you ever feel the need to update people on? I'm all hey, you were reading that and I was there, but now I'm here. I think for me, um, the the sort of hardest part and the biggest part is that I was uh, so in love again. I was so in mm. love with a man um, called The Ginger mm-hmm. and I was really vocal about that love on on social media because I was so happy and it's it's been a real lesson in, I suppose, being publicly private moving forward and I don't think I'll share a relationship in that same way because when he left, uh, and I get teary because um, it was so hard and it was such a, it was harder than the divorce because the divorce was a grief for myself, but this was a grief for us and a grief for a life that I desperately wanted mm. and a clarity of which I had seen that future for myself. And it was kind of taken, it was it was ripped away from me. Um, and I suppose all a lot of the questions on tour um, post-breakup, I mean, he, he was an absence on my social media, I would get 10 DMs a week asking me if the ginger and I were still together. Mm. And it's not something I've talked about um on online um and of course people are reading the book and and realizing that and that's hard um and it's hard because it's been a very protracted breakup um it wasn't a, a clean cut it wasn't um awful or horrible it was just someone needing to understand themselves and work on themselves and he couldn't do that in a relationship mm. there's something really hard when you're a self when you're a self-evolved and you're a realized adult and someone still you have the feeling whether it's true or not that someone doesn't choose you because it's I think like from my own experience when breakups happen and you can reflect on them and you're like oh I actually was xyz and you kind of put the pieces together and you not make excuses but you add up the equation that okay, that didn't work out, but I am now this and this is my true self now. It's different when, you're self, when you've self-accepted and it yeah. still doesn't work out. Yeah, and I think that's the grief and I guess there has never been and will not be any anger um, from me towards him because he chose himself mm. and I 
And I mean that in the best possible way. At 34, he is doing the work. Mm. And that is such a gift for him and for the people in his life because I see 60-year-olds and 70-year-olds that are only just doing it now and I think that's also a grief because imagine the life that they haven't lived because they didn't do that or didn't believe in themselves enough to give themselves backing for that. Yeah. Um, but you're right. It is, it's devastating. It is, um, it's a, it's a version of heartache that is full of such grief and such despair because I know exactly who I am now and I know exactly what I want. Mm. And sometimes you just don't get what you want, Mm. no matter how much you've worked and no matter what, what you've done or could do, you can't love someone into their potential. You can't um, shape shift yourself into making that person stay with you. You have to stay the course of yourself with yourself because it's the most important relationship you'll ever have. Mm. Coming to terms with that is easier said than done. Mm-hmm. It's such a shame. <laughs> and you look at life and you're like, fucking hell. And you just hope that you get a dealt a uh, semi-happy little car. Yeah, and I think, you know, my granddad is like my best friend and I had said to him, um, because we did rekindle and um, we did try to make it work and, and, again, he just needed to be on his own. And my granddad said to me, like, Charlie, like, baby, maybe love just ain't for you. Like, maybe <sighs> you are doing what you're meant to be doing and that is writing and speaking and telling your truth, maybe that's your success. And part of me goes, maybe it is. Mm. Um, and I wish I wasn't such a hopeless romantic. I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's amazing that you are because it's brought us to have such a well-rounded experience in your book. Mm. How do you go when you're expressing your own truth but it involves somebody else. Mm. Did you have to come to terms with that? I've had to do it several times on the podcast and my parents are like, can you not fucking talk about us like yeah. that? And I'm like, shh, don't listen. There are there were two people, oh, three people. There were three people that was um, very, very important for me that they read the book. Mm-hmm. One is my ex-husband mm-hmm. um, and that is because of, you know, I realised in sharing my story I was revealing a lot about him. I mean, at a base level it's because of capital D for defamation. Mm -hmm. Um, But more than that is that I deeply admire and respect him and I absolutely would loathe to do anything that would upset him. And that's not to say that, you know, I might stuff up on the publicity tour and do something that upsets him and, or that, you know, I might, I might just have an oversight of something or something he didn't realise might upset him may. We now have the ability to have that conversation though and when I saw him a few weeks ago I just said just please just talk to me if something comes up and I will do my best to fix it. Mm. And he read the book and and we hadn't spoken for a few months and and he does not read. He's not a reader. He he reads widely on the internet. He will devour long-form articles and Mm. read the news widely and things like that, but he doesn't read books. (laughs) So Um, did he read the manuscript before you Before it went to the printer. Yeah, so he read a printed and bound version, which was the final version, Um, and he was beautiful. He said, I don't necessarily agree with everything that you have said, but I know that that's how you were made to feel, and I think that was such a gift because he understood He's very self-aware and I think he's doing a lot of work to continue on that journey and so it felt like a big gift. 
The second one, uh, second person was my mum, and that's because I reveal um, that she has mental health. Um, mm-hmm. My mum has schizoaffective bipolar disorder, and she was so important because I think there's such a stigma around mental illness. Mm-hmm. And even as a child, of pa- both my parents have mental illness. I can still get it wrong sometimes, and I wanted her to read that and to make sure that she saw herself and that she um, agreed with how I was portraying things. And there were moments where she said, I don't, I don't think you've worded that well enough here. I think this is kind of how you need to describe that. And there was one line where I was basically trying to say that my mum wasn't my mum, like she couldn't be the mum. And she just said a line to me that was like, well, my mental illness is a thief and sometimes it steals me away from you. And so to have that kind of collaboration with her on the, on the first, um, proper chapter form, um, form, sorry, mm-hmm. was really, really important because um, in sharing my story I needed to share hers and, and it was incredibly generous of her that she allowed me to do that. And the final person is the ginger, my ex-boyfriend. Yeah. And that was so crucial and so important to me because he was so identifiable on, on social media. He's um, a very successful wedding photographer and is easily um able to be found out who he is Mm. um i laugh that like when you google um my name it comes up with like charlotte re husband like the related searches it's charlotte re husband charlotte re wedding charlotte re and then his business name the ginger's business name and so it's it is you know hilarious but he uh, the ginger was there for the whole process like at one point just before a big edit was due, I got COVID and he literally cancelled his life and moved in with me for a week to look after me while I wrote it. Like he was there for the whole yeah. journey. But, of course, until the end, you know, he broke up with me um, three weeks before it was due to go to the printer and so much. I used to joke with him, like, can you please just dump me so that I'll be able to really channel the grief of the divorce and channel the the pain of my childhood into writing a better book? And we laughed, but then that's ultimately what happened. And so the book that he knew pre-breakup was very different to the book um, that ended up going to the printer and that included an epilogue which was about him him leaving. And so it was really important for me that he read it and that he uh, I suppose, was able to also just say, you know, this is okay. I have felt at, ter- at times held back from my parents are pretty conservative, from their opinions on sharing and their nerves and their, don't talk about that, like we don't want that out in public, what are you talking, what are you yeah. doing? And I think it holds back a lot of people because their truth involves others and how they got to be how they are is often affected by other people's actions Mm. and when people begin to open up and find their vulnerabilities if they are to express them online or channel them into writing the way that you have it can be really hard and I know a lot of people have arguments and falling outs because of Mm. That I mean, like Prince Harry is the most <laughs> perfect person to talk about. Yeah. Like he got so iced at the coronation. <laughs> what advice could you share for that journey? Because it is so important to. Yeah, to, I mean, I, I, I come from like the least conservative <coughs> mother in the entire universe, mm-hmm. um, and I guess you know, and that's not to say 
there were, were difficult conversations that took place. Like another person that I sent it to was my ex-best friend and we had had a falling out and I'd written in that it, um, about that in the book because I think people don't talk often enough about how a friendship breakup can be as significant yeah. and as detrimental and harrowing as a relationship breakup sometimes, if not more, because, my God, female friendships can be beautiful but they're intense. Yeah. Um, and so I sent it to her and, and she just wrote like one line back and it said, I can tell that you've put a lot of effort into this and I wish you all the best. And wow. so it wasn't all rosy and it wasn't all, you know, um, rainbows and sunshine. But I suppose for me I've just been really clear with people in my life that the only way that I can live and live truthfully um, is to be vulnerable and is to, I mean, there is so much that's not in the book. Mm. There is so much that like will always stay between my husband and I, my ex-husband, um, so much that, you know, I didn't write about my mum or, you know. That's private. Private. It's And a publicly private is the best way because people kind of look at me like, oh, my God, you've exposed yourself so much. How are yeah. you feeling? And I'm like, yeah, but. Don't know all of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I want you to know or yeah. what I let you know. Yeah, and that's not to say I'm, I'm hiding anything. Um, am I protecting myself and protecting people I love? Yes. I would just say to people that if you write your truth and you be the be true to you, that's that should be the guiding the guiding force. Mm -hmm. I've been through a female friendship breakup mm -hmm. and to this day. So sorry. It fucks me. Yeah. And she knows and all my friends know because she's still in our friendship group. Oh. And she just didn't choose me anymore. And I'm so okay to get upset about it because I just think of her and I start crying because I don't know why she didn't choose me and why she doesn't want me anymore. But it is so hard. Adult friendships are fucked. Aren't they the worst? And it's so <laughs> hard to make new friends. And I think that's the thing... Yeah. Uh, the thing, the grief for me with the ex-best friend is that I do not know why and yes. I will not know why. Isn't that, and you beat yourself up so much. But then there's also comfort in knowing that by losing that relationship, I've had the ability to open myself up and expand myself to so many more. Yeah, to new ones. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great way and to And just... Also realising, and I don't know if you feel like this, but if I met her now, we wouldn't be friends. We are so different. Yeah. We're such different people. And I have had, you know, the luxury that she was um, she was really good friends with my ex-husband. Their, their mums were best friends. And so it's kind of not that I had to have her in, it's in that social circle and I didn't have yeah. to have. You don't endure it. What you have, which I um, oh my god, crying the mascara's gone in my eyes now. No, it's stingy. Oh <laughs> but I, I feel that pain. I know it. It's real, well. and I agree. Women don't talk about it because female friend. I mean, men go through it too, and I think men. I've spoken to a guy friend of mine. It's happened to him recently too, and he found it even perhaps harder because he because men sometimes don't just talk about their feelings. So then they're like, oh, he doesn't want to get a beer with me, and then it's just this sort of like really no communication mm. and no self-awareness and not a lot of thought going into it. They just stew, yeah. <laughs> which is weird in itself. But, yeah, there needs to be more. There does. And more guidance and more totally. hand-holding around you're not alone. This happens yeah. all the time because it feels like it feels lonely being one going through the grief of that. There is, I've read that 
a chapter at a couple of events mm. and it's so it's a pandemic like there is a, <laughs> <laughs> it is like if people just talked about it you would just realize yeah how often <laughs> I know well it, it has helped me reading it so now that you've come back do you think that you've come back to yourself or do you think that you have made yourself like how would you look at it? Because you know how when you have yourself before and then you get into a relationship and you're not yourself anymore. But it kind of sounds like you I don't think I ever had myself. Yeah. I think, and this is um, something I found really, really hard to articulate to anybody that's never felt like this. Yeah. I was never in my body. I was never fully present. I was never, um, I was floating. Right. And it wasn't until I met the Oracle, my psychologist, and it wasn't until I left my marriage and I had to really process on steroids and I had to really sit in the shit Mm. that I came into my own self again and into my body. And it's the, the best way to describe it is that it's the parasympathetic nervous system, it's fight or flight, your, um, my body responds to trauma by vomiting Mm -hmm. and that is that my body for a really long time couldn't decipher if a bear was chasing me or if a fly was buzzing around me in terms of anxiety and stress if the anxiety that I was feeling was because it was life-threatening or because it was just stressful (laughs) and so um your body my body purges as a way to make itself lighter when it needs to run essentially and I spend every minute of every day being actively being in my body and so um, that can involve when I have those feelings of nausea or stress of tapping and really centering myself and reminding myself like hey you're here you've got you you've got you I swim every day Mm -hmm. um I do like one to two k's of laps in an ocean pool um, and that's a way to I sort of tire myself out. It's one time I can't be on my phone. I <laughs> count, I just count strokes, I count laps and I do nothing else with my brain. That then makes me hungry. It makes me tired and they're two really big things that I sort of don't do if I feel like I've disassociated from myself. And a lot of the disassociation just came from trigger points or trauma points. And so um, I genuinely feel like for the first time I'm actually in my person. Mm. And that's not to say that things don't happen like getting a heart ripped out of its chest. And I revert back to that sort of trauma pattern um, or response pattern. But I do everything I can to be present and be in the moment I think there's a lot out there about presence and being in the moment and doing things to reach your optimal self. <laughs> da, 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 da. But it's there's a whole nother layer. What that star sign are you? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, <laughs> that oh, was a fast answer. I am. An no, but, people ask me every day, I think. No, I know, but like, you know, like there's that whole like, well, what's your star sign? Oh, yeah, like human design yeah, or that kind of stuff. I think there's a whole other layer to it of creating an optimal self from in recovery and making sure that you are like you've almost disciplined yourself yeah to swim to therefore be tired and mm-hmm. hungry I don't think that's talked about enough either yeah that it's a routine that saves me in a lot of ways yeah routines can do that and I there's so much advice out there about what to do when you hit moments of despair and 
fear and anxiety and everything, but routine in a nurturing kind of way is getting to know yourself in a whole other other level. It's so important. Yeah. You are so articulate oh. and self-aware. <laughs> Where do you think that came from? Uh, definitely my mum. She had my brother at 17 and me at 21. Okay. A lot of her friends didn't have children until they were like 35. Mm-hmm. We were expected to sit at the dinner table from a really young age and sit with adults and have conversations. And as part of mum's mental health, we had very adult conversations with yes, her from okay. a really young age. <laughs> you know, I grew up um, quite quickly, I think. And I've also worked with incredibly articulate people for 13 years. I've worked with some of Australia's biggest writers and authors. Uh, you have and to hold a conversation. Yeah, you? <laughs> yeah, you do. And, and um, so much of my job is relationship-based and relationship-driven. And so um, I do see it as a really big compliment, though, when people say that to me. So thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> people say it to me too. And I personally feel like a noodle. Like if someone was to say, who are you? I'd be like, I'm a noodle because I don't. Like a pool noodle? No, or like, a pasta a, like a pasta noodle, <laughs> like, I, like a spaghetti that's yeah. perhaps been in the water too long. Oh, wow. Like I feel just like a, like because I think creatively so quickly at 24-7 and even in this podcast, I sometimes I don't compute the sentences properly. I feel like I'm like sometimes that no, guy, you know, with the air going, yeah, yeah, it's so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> He's in a parking no, garage. He's no. like, Ugh. <laughs> No, but then I think too it's I guess um, it's a pro and a con in that I just can't. It's not that I'm <laughs> not filtered but I'm not filtered. Like yeah. I just am so myself and it's caught me out at events a couple of times where <laughs> I just say things that I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God. <laughs> so after a book like this you're essentially now you're on a press junket. Yes. Kind of. Mm. And you're actually my first guest that was relevant in timing of a release to have on a podcast. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And I think that's probably why you're, you forwarded it onto your, was it a PR or yeah, agent that, that I ended up? Yeah, publicist. And then <coughs> it's, is it hard over and over again talking about firstly something that is your own life, like writing it is one thing, but the press piece after that of a memoir is that hard and also you mentioned that seven months ago you so are you kind of like oh fuck off I just want to talk about me now no not at all I think um it's incredibly healing it's incredibly Mm. freeing it is um such a gift the book has been a gift it has been a gift in the sense that you know my estranged dad who I hadn't seen for three years came to my book launch my um you know ex-mother-in-law and I connected again like it's been a gift in a lot of ways it is hard for me to talk about the ginger and I think that's because even in the the writing of the ending of the book I was writing about something I had not yet accepted or processed or understood I had two weeks to do that uh and even now uh like six months on it's still not something I'm I have come to terms with right the marriage and the divorce and the grief and the pain there has been healed and then some Mm. um but it's been a gift this the publicity the events the writing the sharing because it's allowing me to connect with people in a way that I'd only ever hoped I might be able we touched on before that it's um, obviously the work is never finished, but you've created a time capsule 
I guess, post COVID where, or in COVID, post breakup, the day COVID came knocking. That is a time capsule of your grief and almost a transformation for you to get from who you were then to who you are seven mm-hmm. months ago to be the woman writing a book. Mm-hmm. Do you now have a pressure to kind of look at your next chapter mm-hmm. and look at these different pieces to be like, I've got to chronicalize this? It's, <laughs> it is funny. You know, I'd never seen myself as a writer and my publisher just um, kept saying, Kelly kept saying, you're a writer, you're a writer, you're mm-hmm. a writer. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then I was at a writer's festival. It was my first event for the book tour. And this um, beautiful volunteer said, do you have a ticket for this event? And I went, no, nah, I'm a writer. And it was like the first time I said it and now I actually believe it. I would, and I, I mean this, I would love to live a life that's not worth writing about. <laughs> I would love to be in love and yeah. loved and living with that person and maybe having babies, but really just just kind of um, heatedly discussing what we're going to make for dinner that night yeah. and what we're going to do that weekend. Mm-hmm. I would love to do that, but I don't have that. <laughs> uh, and so I suppose until I do, then this is what I want to be doing. And do I, um, you know, record every therapy session I have with Oracle thinking that maybe I might be able to use it at some point? Yes. Do you? Do I? Yeah. Is yeah. that common? No. Okay. <laughs> well, she tells me no. Okay. Um, but also I think in moments of, of great grief, um, it's been a way for me to re, um, re-listen and replay and, and hear it for the first time because I think when you're in moments of distress, it's very hard to be accessed mm-hmm. even by people that you trust the most. So it saved me in a lot of ways, but it is um, I learned so much just from replaying those therapy sessions Um, but also they were incredibly helpful in the writing of the book Mm. Um, and I suppose that's the other thing I would say to come back to your earlier question about writing about real people we live in such a modern world that I have irrefutable text message histories and email histories and you know you that's the the pro and con, I guess, of being in this digital age is that you do have a very traceable, tangible timeline of exactly who said what yeah. and when. Are you a journaler? Um, I was. I began when I um, when I left and left my marriage. I started journaling, um, but I am working on another book. I don't know if I have that in me. I think I. I don't want to be that person that's like, well, you know, my first book was great, so I'm going to do another one, you know. Um, yes. I only want to do something if I actually feel like I've got something to share and I don't know what that is yet. The recipes. Mm. They are beautiful the way that you've shared where they've come from and stuff as well. It's a real um, joy to have access to those and connect feelings and what you felt around that, it's really new to, to me personally mm. to connect that. But I've inherently been doing that my whole life, choosing food and tastes that make me feel a certain way. My mum, bless her, I hope she doesn't care that I say this, her burritos are so bland. <laughs> but they're <laughs> she needs salt. But they're home. Mm-hmm. Like that is the feeling and the taste and the smell that literally is home. Mm-hmm. And it's so rare for, especially in this like digital age, we're all sharing what we're doing visually to actually be able to communicate taste mm. in a way of a sensation of a book is wild to me. So, And you did it in the most beautiful, oh, wow. like Thank authentic you. way. So 
what what is next for a home cook now after this book? Do you just keep cooking and doing the things and you'll or are you like how has the recipes been been received? Are you going to do more of It's this? hilarious because I think I forgot that people would actually cook from the book. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I just thought they'd read it. Um, yes. And so it's been wonderful to see them being cooked. <coughs> I mean, there's a there's a lot of things in the pipeline. There are mm. film rights discussions happening, which is hilarious wow. to me. Wow. Who yeah. would play you? I really want Jessie Buckley to play me. I don't know if you know her. No. Uh, she was in like The Lost Daughter. Um, she's a UK actress. I just, it's that is just laughable to me that I, anyone could possibly ever want to watch what they read. Oh, my God. I but for that. me, um, I think I've realised my real purpose is to connect women through food. And so I run a supper club from mm-hmm. my rooftop in Sydney in Potts Point. It's free. It is um, individual diners. They're all strangers. Um, they're all people that have just signed up from Instagram on a wait list. And uh, the purpose of the dinners is to come hungry but come are ready to be vulnerable and to connect. And Mm. so I make a four-course meal uh, and I, you know, sit down and I talk about myself but I mostly want them to talk to each other. And the real purpose of it is for people to realise that we are all so different and we all have lived such different lives or had different experiences. I might be divorced but you might be married or unpartnered or never had a relationship before or who knows but we're all so similar and just by being a little bit vulnerable, yeah. gosh, if people were a lot vulnerable it would be amazing, but just by opening up a little bit, just saying, hi, this is me, I'm not okay, this is what's going on in my world. And I ask uh, one question at the supper clubs, um, which is after mains, um, it's the only sort of forced interaction of the evening and it's what your highlight and low light of the past year has been. And I start by sharing mine and I preface it by saying people don't have to have a highlight, they don't have to have a low light. Sometimes it might be the same thing. Sometimes someone might say something and you think, oh, my God, my low light or highlight is so insignificant and that's not the case. It's really mm. significant to you, so share it. And, you know, at a supper club recently, after entree, before I'd even asked the question, we, people going around saying who they were and how they'd found out about Supper Club. And a woman said that she'd been in New Zealand in January with her partner and a little boy was drowning in a lake and he went out to save the little boy and he saved the little boy but he passed away. Mm. And it was the first time that she had talked about it but that she had talked about it in a room full of strangers as well. Wow. And I guess... What I'm trying to say with that is when you create a space and a safe space and you allow yourself to just be you unashamedly, without fear, without um, fear of judgment or consequence or um, shame, you can just open yourself up to the most amazing experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. It feels like you're really fostering an incredible um space for people to do that yeah I I just I just wish that I had had that and so if I can do that for someone then that's what I'm gonna do Alison Rice do you know Alison Rice she ends her podcast saying with all the media and all the Instagram followers stripped away who are you yeah (laughs) but with all your work that you've the self-work and the accolades of the book and everything that's come out who do you think that you have found in yourself like who are you now 
I think ultimately uh, I'm a girl who loves love and believes in love more than anything and uh, do I desperately believe in that one big giant love and do I think the ginger's the love of my life (laughs) Um, and uh, do I, you know, hope against hope that we figure that out? Absolutely. But till then I suppose I'm the girl that knows that she's got her own back and that knows that um, no matter what comes at me, I'm holding myself and I've got myself and I know I'm going to be okay because I have proven that to myself time and time again. I've been put in situations where I have had to go to the depths and to the core of it all. And that to me is is the greatest gift is that I can sit here right now and say, I've got you, Charlotte mm. And I love you, Charlotte And Aww. someday some guy is going to love me back. But till Aww. then I love myself. I love you, Charlotte <laughs> <laughs> And everyone else can love you too. Aww. So if people want to love you more, where can they find Heartbake? Uh, they can find Heartbake in all good bookstores and online. It's really aesthetically pleasing, guys. You have to get it. <laughs> like you have to. I wish I had some sort of ability to be Oprah so that I could be oh, like, you, you get, get a book. book. <laughs> I'm not there yet. We don't no. even have a podcast sponsor at the moment. But and one there day. is a audiobook as well, which I read, which is probably You the reading most... it would fucking kill me. Yeah, it was probably the, my favourite part of the whole process. That was really... Um, it was a really special five days recording that. Was it tiring, revisiting? Oh, terrific. It was so – and it amazed me the different things that upset me, but I had this amazing producer called Dave in my ear and, uh, you know, I'd be reading about the lasagna or, like, rolling the sheets mm. or the ragu and he was like, I can fucking taste it, man. I can taste it. He's in my ear and he's like, Dave, whoa. I can fucking taste it, man. I can smell it. Or, you know, I got to the ginger and – um, and he's going, I love this dude. What a guy. What a guy. And then I got to the breakup and I could just hear him in my ear. And he goes, I'm, I'm really sorry, Charlotte. We just we need to take a break. Aww. And he was crying. So had he read the book? No. Oh, okay. So he read it for the fresh. first time. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you'd obviously bonded through five days. Yeah, yeah. It was it was an amazingly, um, it was like going into probably one of those like floating tanks what are oh they yeah called? those float they're yeah. called float tanks yeah. tanks like it was a dark room it was just me in that room with one little light and an ipad and him kind of through a window in the other and it just felt like intensive intensive therapy wow i love that i'm gonna listen to it now as well i'm <laughs> gonna revisit thank you so much for joining me thank you so it much was a pleasure and i'm so excited now to just know you <laughs> i'm fangirled so hard <laughs> That brings me to the end of my episode with Charlotte. As she mentioned, you can grab her book at all good bookstores and I've also left a link in the show notes for you to grab it. I hope that you loved that chat and if you did, I would really, really love it if you could leave a review. Reviews on Apple Podcasts basically send the algorithm all the good vibes and helps to grow the podcast and get it in front of other people that would potentially love it that otherwise wouldn't necessarily know how to find it. I work super hard on this podcast with my team week in, week out to bring you episodes and we're currently not sponsored. So while we're not bringing in that sweet, sweet income for creativity, I would love if you guys could leave a review just to help us grow and keep bringing you all the good chats. Thank you so much and I will see you next week.